Okay, so we're doing this series on the book of the Revelation entitled Game Over. And the final score is, each week in this series, I like to just take a quick moment and give you a little frame of reference, uh, a little big picture overview. Um, so I just want to real quickly do that today because we're kind of at a, another turning point in the story, okay? The Revelation, the book we're studying, is actually a series of revelations that God gave to John. And um, chapter 17 starts the third vision in John's revelation. If you remember, if you've been here with us, the first vision he had was of Christ, the risen Christ, and the seven letters to the seven churches. The second vision was the vision of the throne of God and the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. We just finished with that. Now, this third vision is of Babylon's demise, the coming of the king, and the end of evil. We're going to start into the first part of that today, uh, Babylon's demise. There's a fourth vision in this that we'll get to. And, you know, talk about saving the best till last. Wait till you get, wait till we get to that fourth vision of what's coming. It's amazing. One of the ways we know how this book is broken down is because each one of these new visions starts with that little key phrase in the spirit. Okay, and here's how chapter 17 and for the next couple chapters is led into Revelation 17, three says, this is John speaking, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten, ten horns. Now, before we start diving in, we're going to, as is our custom each week, we're going to have someone read the entire chapter for us. So if you'll stand, please. Uh, Brenda, Brenda Zimmerman is going to come and read for us this morning. So if you'll stand as she's coming. Brenda, thanks for helping us today with this. One of the seven angels who had had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things, and with the fifth of her adulteress. This title was given, written on her forehead. I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, Now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads 
are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. But when he does come, he will remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is the eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Amen. Thank you, Rena. You can have a seat. You just listen to that and you go, okay, so he was and he isn't and he will be and the five and the one and the one is an eighth and anybody else confused by this? Okay, good. Hopefully today we can bring some clarity to what seems like is a giant mystery. And the word mystery is really prevalent even in this chapter. So um, if you're confused, hopefully we can help you with that today. Let's work our way back through this chapter. Okay, as I, I read, we'll break it down a couple verses at a time. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth commit acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Uh, we're not sure which one of the seven angels this is. It doesn't really matter. Okay, that's not the important thing. The important thing is what this angel is doing. The angel is calling John to this third vision. Come here. I want to show you this, okay? This is the third time that John introduces Babylon into the story. The other two times, very, very briefly, in chapter 14, verse number 8, and chapter 16, verse number 19, there's just a mention of Babylon, and it's almost an interjection into the story. But here, and in the next chapter, we are going to see John fill in the details of what happens to Babylon, Babylon's judgment and demise. At this point in the story, it's now too late. Remember how every week I've been telling you that even as these trumpets are sounded and these bowls of judgment are poured out, God's ultimate heart in that is mercy, that this comes upon mankind and God's hope is they would repent. They would finally go, oh God, I'm so sorry. Once we get here, it's too late. So there's a, a shift in what's going on here as we progress towards uh, the last day, towards the end. No more mercy. Judgment has now come. The great harlot, 
That's a biblical metaphor uh, for unfaithfulness or for spiritual adultery, okay? And what is being said here about this, this great harlot, this Babylon, is that their prosperity leads them to opulence, to waste, to overabundance, which takes them to this place of self-sufficiency, which leads them to injustice and oppression and greed, that finally takes them to this place of violence, violence against and hatred towards God's people and God's ways. These things always have a tendency to to build like that and to continue to go farther and farther down a bad path, a bad road. This, This harlot, this great harlot, it says, is one who sits on many waters. For many, many years, scholars and commentators thought that this referred to Rome and to the Roman Empire, and then specifically that the harlot was the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I don't believe that what's described here fits Rome because Rome sits on the Tiber River. The Tiber River runs through Rome. It doesn't sit on many waters, okay? Some believe it's literal Babylon. I'm not sure about that one. Babylon back in the day sat on a series of canals, so there was water, but it was the Euphrates River that ran through. So many waters is a little bit of a stretch. Although the prophet Jeremiah does say this about Babylon in chapter 51 of Jeremiah, verse 13. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come, the measure of your end. My best guess, when you look at the context of the whole book and, and what it's saying, is the, the point is not that Babylon is a literal city, a geographic place that we should try and figure out. I do think it it is a geographic place, an actual city. But the point being made here is not, so do you think it's Rome? Do you think it's Washington, D.C.? Do you think it's literal Babylon in Iraq? I don't think that's the point John's driving at. That's not the point the Lord's trying to get at. It's, It's symbolic of... This, this center, this, this headquarters, this, this capital of the anti-God, anti-Christ kingdom and the world system that's trying to replace the kingdom of God. When it says the kings of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her immorality, it says that that means the, the leaders and the people, they're participating in this sin and they're intoxicated, they're seduced by the power The greed, the lust, it it grabs their hearts. And something in unredeemed man says, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I'm after. All the promises made to mankind are are somewhat, a little bit, fulfilled. And they, they swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Last chapter, back in chapter 16, in response to Babylon seducing the nations with the the wine of the passion of her immorality, God's judgment and God's response to what Babylon, this world system, was doing was very, very clear. In Revelation 16, 19, it's not a PowerPoint slide, but it says the great city was split into three parts by that great earthquake and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered for God To give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. 
And the point was this. Babylon, you're trying to seduce all the nations of the world with the cup of immorality. God says, okay. That's how you want to play it? I got a cup for you. And it's the cup of his fierce wrath. And we're going to see today, and especially next week, what this fierce wrath entails. Let's keep reading. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Uh, There's a couple possibilities. One of them is it's a vantage point, almost like a 50-yard line seat, because what is coming to Babylon and the nations of the world is absolute desolation and destruction. And it's almost like perhaps John being in the wilderness means he's got an up-close personal view of what's coming to the nations of the world. There's another possibility, and I I lean a little more towards this one, and it's that this is similar to, you remember when the Apostle Paul, the, the Pharisee of the Pharisees on the mission to destroy the church, has that Damascus Road experience where he encounters the living Christ, and all of a sudden, all of his education about the law and how you had to be faithful to the law, and it was about works and all that stuff, he has this encounter with Jesus. The book of Galatians says in the first chapter, verses 15 through 18, that after he had that encounter, he went into the wilderness, the desert of Arabia for three years, almost to just try and figure out what in the world has happened to me. Everything I always believed and thought was the truth, I encounter Christ and it's all undone. And it's like he has to go be by himself in solitude to put the pieces of his life and and what he always believed and understood back together. I think there's, there's a great possibility that this is like that because what John is about to see undoes his whole picture of, of how he thought this was going to end and what was happening. We'll explain that a little more in a minute. There's a lot of interesting wording and imagery here. This harlot that sits on many waters. Again, many waters is a statement about the, the vast sea of humanity. The passage talks about people from every time, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it, it's as if there's this overall connected relationship and intertwining between all the peoples, all the nations of the whole earth coming against the kingdom of God to set up their own kingdom, their own false kingdom. This, this woman, this harlot, it says is sitting on the scarlet beast. That is not a picture of the harlot dominating the beast. Rather, it's a picture of the beast, the antichrist supporting and carrying this world's system. The, the, the harlot depends upon and is in relationship with the antichrist to try and thwart what God is doing in God's kingdom. It's the same beast that we saw back in chapter 13. Again, not a PowerPoint slide, but John in chapter 13 said, Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems. On his head were blasphemous names. That's exactly what this passage says. So it's the same descriptive terms. This is the Antichrist supporting, working in conjunction with the harlot, with Babylon, with the the world system. This is a picture of them working together, being interdependent. And it's as if the the capital of this godless civilization, this harlot, has achieved what she thinks is her own glory, her own greatness by serving the beast. And, oh, that's just a small price to pay. Serve the beast, yeah, yeah, yeah. But look who it makes us. Isn't that always how the devil works? 
He, well, yeah, I'll just need a little involvement in your life, like total control. But look what you'll have. Same thing. Same thing going on here, okay? Just give me, just worship me, and then you can be in charge. You see how contrary those two comments are? Oh, just worship me, and you can be in charge. Worshiping him who's in charge. He is. And that's the picture we're going to see painted here, all right? So... The harlot thinks she's achieved her own greatness by serving the beast. The beast is only all too happy to help her as long as the harlot serves the beast's purpose. And that is, again, being worshipped. These blasphemous names, if you remember from earlier study, it's not so much anti-God as it is self-deification. This picture of this harlot clothed in purple and scarlet, those are the colors of royalty and splendor and luxury. Uh, she's got gold and precious stones and pearls. Boy, she's just, she's got it going. She's got extravagance and opulence and all those things that on the outside seem to be, boy, that's really the goal, isn't it? That's what we live for. That's what we're after. She gets all the outer trimmings, but wait till you see inside. This golden cup full of abominations and unclean things. It's the same language that Jeremiah uses to describe Babylon back in the book that he wrote. Jeremiah 51.7 says, Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are going mad. Does that last phrase describe the world around us or what? Are the nations of the world going mad or what? And just when I think it can't get any worse, I wake up and look at the paper the next day and go, oh my gosh, it's crazier out there today than it was yesterday. And it feels like you can say that just about every day. That it just keeps getting zooier and crazier out there. Please notice this. Babylon has been a gold cup in the hand of who? The Lord. Even as this gets chaotic and crazy and more nuts every day, God is still in control. God is still sovereign. God is still at work in this chaotic mess, bringing about his great plan. The the point that's being made here is with the promise of wealth and luxury, Babylon entices people away from God. And the love of money can do that. Money's not the problem. It's the love of money that's the problem. But it has a tendency to hook people's hearts if they're not careful. All right, verse 5. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. To have something written on your forehead was a sign of possession, a sign of ownership, much like the mark of the beast, okay? This world system... All right, this, this Babylon world system is totally on board at this point with Antichrist worship, with turning people away from God. Uh, even if the harlot doesn't realize the degree of participation and thinks, hey, look what I'm getting out of this, this is all for me, that's not how it's working because the devil is playing them. And doesn't he always do that? He plays people. He'll promise anything if he can just get his hooks in. And he does. Now, it says here, on her forehead, a name was written. A mystery, Babylon the great mother of harlots. Now, because the Greek language doesn't have punctuation, all right, like we know it, scholars debate if what this is saying is the name Babylon the great is a mystery, or is it saying her name literally is mystery Babylon the great? 
I don't know which it is. Nobody quite knows. But either way, the point again is this is symbolic. It's not identifying the literal city and let's figure out who it is. Um, It will be, I think, an actual city in the end. But this is about what Babylon represents and what it has represented from almost the beginning of time. Let's go back for just a quick minute to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. What tower is that, by the way? The tower of Babel. Sounds like Babylon. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is the record of the first move among civilizations to not want or not need God anymore. That's the point. Let's make a name for ourselves. We don't need God. Let's get him out of the picture. Well, folks, by the time we get to Revelation chapter 17, put the next slide back up. From the seed of Genesis 11, now the mother of harlots... The mother of harlots, what a term. She has reproduced offspring all over the planet now that has the same unified message. We don't need God. We don't want God. We'll make a name for ourselves. And by golly, we've done a pretty good job of it, haven't we? And in the natural, it kind of looks that way. It says there that this, this woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Now, that's not talking about cannibalism. It's talking about being intoxicated. This world system is intoxicated with power and they think they're winning. They've killed the saints. They've killed the witnesses of Jesus. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why I believe that the church will still be here. Now, it's possible that the rapture's already happened in the story, and this is post-rapture people who come to faith in Christ. Or it's possible that these are the Jews who are still here on planet Earth until Jesus comes again. Those who come to faith in Christ as Messiah. But I personally believe that the church is still going to be here. Somebody told me a week or so ago that they heard a radio preacher who said, this, that cannot be. The rapture has had to take place. Jesus came and suffered for us so that we don't have to go through this kind of suffering. I wish that were true. But personally, I think that is creating God in our own image. And I think that's an American wishful thinking of how we'd like it to be. Unfortunately, I think saying something like Jesus came and suffered so we don't have to suffer anymore. I don't think that plays real well in China or in the Sudan. Would you like me to keep listing nations where martyrdom is a more and more regular occurrence? I I wish it were so, but I, I just personally don't think that Jesus came to suffer so that we would never have to suffer Along these lines. I I just don't think it's the case. It says at the end of verse 6. When when John saw this harlot. Drunk with the blood of the saints. and, And the witnesses of Jesus. That he wondered greatly. Some versions say marveled greatly. I'm not sure what your Bible says. But it's not a marveled greatly. Like wow I'm so impressed. 
It's much more the opposite of that. It's, I think it's part of why John went into the wilderness. Because what he was seeing in this moment just confused him terribly. It, it overwhelmed him. This is not what I expected to see. Didn't you, angel, didn't you start this saying to me that, that you were going to show me the judgment of the great harlot? And so I'm expecting to see the judgment of the great harlot. And what I'm seeing is this harlot drunk with the blood? Of the, of the saints and, and the witnesses? What? See, I think that's what's going on at this moment. I, John is troubled. Have you ever been troubled by what you expected to see and what you actually see in this life? Would you be honest enough to raise your hand if that's true? It's true for me. And I think it's the Christian experience. Many times. I love the Psalms and I I love not just the Psalms David wrote, but there's a Psalm that a guy named Asaph wrote. It's the 73rd Psalm. And um, man, I can relate to what this guy feels and what he says. I want to see if you can too. Now, for you to do that, it means you have to take your church face off and you have to be real honest with me and with yourself today, okay? But I want to see if you can relate to any of this. Put it in your own context, your own life, your own circumstance, your own situation. Psalm 73, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Do you ever feel that? Wonder that? God, here I am trying to serve you and these people could give a flying rip about you. As a matter of fact, they're disobedient and yet they seem to be at ease They have money. Life seems to be going so well for them. I'm not the only one, am I, that ever wonders that? Well, then he goes on and says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Do you ever wonder, God, is this really worth it? I'm doing everything I know to do to to obey you and to walk after your ways. And this just gets nothing but harder. And here these people are again. They don't care a hoot about you. And their life seems to be going so well. Anybody? Now, here comes the the key to a proper perspective. Asaph also writes, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. In, In my natural mind, I can't get this. I can't figure this out. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. I don't think that means you have to go to church or he had to go into the temple. I think it's talking about coming into the presence of God. When I came into God's presence, I've got God's mind on this. Then I perceive their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terror. Folks, it's not about now, how it looks now. It's not about how it looks on the surface It's about the end. It's about the big picture. It's about God's ultimate truth and his ultimate victory. Wait, this just in, we win. No matter what it looks like on the surface, we win. We still win. Okay? Okay. Let's keep reading. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. 
And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. This is mystery-laden chapter, if ever there was one, okay? The woman is the world system. It's Babylon. The beast who carries her. This is, this is Satan's puppet, okay? And it's, it's inseparable from that perspective. And the message being given here is, John, good shepherd, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Don't get caught into the how come they and how come they and short-term vision. This is a spiritual battle, okay? Don't lose sight of that and don't lose sight of the big picture. This beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. The beast that was refers to this antichrist spirit that's been on the earth and involved in the earth since the Tower of Babylon. This beast that is not is a picture of how Satan and all of his cohorts and how this world system ultimately was defeated at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. But we live in this tension, I've been telling you. We live kind of between the times of Christ's first coming when he defeated the enemy and his second coming when he will defeat him once and for all and forevermore. So when it talks about the beast is not, it's a reference to his ultimate end. But he comes up out of the abyss. That's talking about after the thousand year reign of Christ when he's unbound for that short period of time. And then he will go to destruction. That's his final sentencing in Revelation 20. Now we're going to cover all this in greater detail. But in one sentence, it's a giant review and a panoramic picture of history. In one sentence with regards to the enemy. Those who dwell on the earth, whose name's not written in the book of life, two ways to say the same thing. It says at the end of this verse that they now marvel. They now wonder. John wondered, like, what is going on? I don't get it. These people marvel and wonder in a very different, opposite way. They're positive, but it's a false hope. They're looking at what's going on. And when it says they marvel at this beast who was and is not and will come, that's a reference to the head. Remember the head wound that the beast had in chapter 13? Almost like he was resurrected. That's a picture of Jesus delivering the death blow on the cross, but it not being over, over until he comes again. And it's as if in this moment, the enemy... The, the kingdom of this world, this anti-Christ system, has made a comeback. And it looks like they're winning. Wait, wait. This just in. We win. Doesn't matter what it looks like. We win. There are going to be times and seasons and points when it looks like we're losing. Are we losing? No! We win. We're winners. This is not a comeback. It's a momentary little thing. And now, if you thought it was mystery before, watch where it goes now. This is such cryptic language that wisdom is needed. So here it is. Verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads and the seven mountains on which the woman sits, these are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Again, a lot of scholars thought this was Rome because Rome was the city built on seven hills. But the language in the Greek here doesn't say hills. It says mountains. 
And mountains are always a symbol of power and authority and rule. And it may look like these seven heads and seven mountains on which the women sits are walking in victory as this world system comes into play and it looks a little bit like maybe God's being defeated in this whole thing. Uh Uh-uh. Look what Micah says. Micah chapter 4 Verse 1, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the what? The chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. This just in, we win. Even if it looks like the enemy is making a comeback and rising up, the mountain of the Lord will be raised up above every other mountain. Who wins? We win because the Lord wins. All right. These seven heads are seven mountains. The women, woman sits on them. A lot of scholars think that the, or used to think that the, these were the seven emperors of the Roman Empire. That really doesn't fit the bigger picture. I think there's something more global happening here. It's, it's a picture of the age-old struggle in history. And here's what I think these things represent. All right. The possible historical pattern of this. Five have fallen, I think refers to the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks. They've all fallen. One is, that's the Roman Empire. When this was written, Rome was it. Then, one is yet to come. I think that's either... Speaking of the revised Roman Empire, which could look like the European common market, the nations of Europe rising up to take this place of power, or it could be something else. And I don't want to minimize that other as kind of a tack on. I'll, t- I'll tell you what that is, I think, here in just a second. But I want to, I want to do a little revelation math, okay? Because it just gets a little more confusing. Listen to these next two verses. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Is that clear? Everybody get that? What? Was is not. He's an eighth and is one of the seven. Oh, great. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's do a little revelation math, okay? So, five fallen. We've looked at what those were, okay? I think that's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Those are the five fallen, plus the one that is, is Rome, plus there's one to come, which could be uh, the European common market or something else. Everybody okay so far? Five plus one plus one equals seven. But it says that this is an eighth. What in the world does that mean? That's math I don't quite get. That's fuzzy. Unless you understand this to mean out of these seven, the first five and the Roman Empire and then this one that is coming, there will be out of this a reemergence of either one of these or a conglomeration of these seven that will form a brand new thing, an eighth thing that will produce under the full control of the Antichrist, the full dominance of the Antichrist, this world system that's being raised up for the one final conflict 
that we'll see when we get to chapter 19. Now, that could be the, um, the, the, Roman, the new Roman Empire, the European common market. We've talked about those ten nations that seem to be the power nations in that European market that are building this global economy and all these other things. It also is very possible that out of this could be ten nations of Islam, radical Islam that are raised up against the kingdom of God. It could be something totally different. We don't know what it is. But there are going to be ten kings, ten horns, ten kings, not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority for one hour. That, folks, I think is the perfect picture of the volatility of the world in which we live today. Have you been paying attention? I mean, one day Greece is fine and the next day Greece has fallen apart and Greece falls apart and then every other nation in Europe is on the brink of total collapse and they're saying that collapse could come here and then it goes over into to the Asian markets and there is volatility in this world system like we can't believe. It's this thing for one hour. But here's the key word I want you to get. They receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. I almost want to ask this, but I know it's a trick question, so I won't, dis- I won't fool you with it. So many people read this and say, see, the beast is going to give him this power. It's not the beast. They receive this power from the Lord. The beast receives his power from the Lord. Wait, this just in. We win. Even if the whole world falls apart, God is still the one in control. God is still the one giving authority and power to these ten kings, to the beast, to everybody else on the other side. Because it is a part of his sovereign plan playing out. Let not your heart be troubled, brothers and sisters. Don't wring your hands going, oh, what's happening? God is still in control. Listen to this, verse 13. They have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. They're not important, these ten kings. Their purpose is to serve the beast's purpose. We looked at chapter 13 to serve him politically, economically, and religiously. They are given, they receive this power from God. But here, these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will, not might, will overcome them. Because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those who are with him are called, are, those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. I don't care how bad it gets. Remember that from last week? No, Ken, I don't remember that from last week. Well, let me remind you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 says, When the Lord comes back, He is going to slay His enemies with the breath of His mouth. It's not going to take Him any more than that. And they're done. They're annihilated. They're evaporated. They're dealt with. This just in. We win. You getting this? We win, folks. I love the way this verse ends. He's Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. There are some scholars that believe that paints a picture of God's multitasking work among all the peoples of the world. And what that saying is, the called are the church. We are the ones called out, the called ones. The chosen, Israel. God's chosen people. And the faithful being those who are saved during the great tribulation. 
and who maintain, even in the midst of this persecution, their newfound faith in Jesus. I can't prove that to you, but it sure makes good sense to me. And it seems to fit the picture of God doing a redeeming work in the midst of all the calamity and chaos and confusion and mess. Okay, let's quickly wrap this up. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. It's that sea of humanity being influenced together. But then we see a glimpse of the core nature of the devil. Ten horns which you saw and the beasties will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. Folks, that is the core nature of the devil every time, all the time. He came to kill, to steal, and destroy. And this whole thing, because of the nature of unredeemed mankind, will turn on itself and devour itself from the inside out. And you see, part of God's judgment in all this is to turn them over to their own desires. And it will happen every time. The kingdom of darkness will always turn on itself and devour itself. And there will be such chaos and destruction and calamity because of this self-fulfilling prophecy of the nature of evil. Chapter 18 has a lot more detail on that. But here is the key perspective verse. All this is going to happen. They're going to hate the harlot, make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Why? For God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. This just in, we win. God is sovereign. God is absolutely in control of this whole gigantic mess. God is the one behind all this, church. He's the one. He's put this into their hearts for his purpose, so his word will be fulfilled. It's just like chapter 1, verse 1 of the Revelation said, these things must take place. Because God's got a big, good plan that he's going to fulfill. And then finally, the woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Doesn't matter if it's Babylon, Sodom and Gomorrah, Rome, Washington, D.C., that's not the point. The point is this. For a time, this city, this worldly kingdom will reign over the peoples, the dwellers of the earth. But there is one coming, church, who eventually will reign over it all, once and for all and forevermore. And his name is Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How fitting this is. I'm not smart enough to plan this, okay? I readily admit that. But this is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday when we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. When the people cried, Hosanna, save us now. We commemorate that. And we're going to have our kids march here in a minute to do a little palm parade. To commemorate that first Palm Sunday. But I want to remind you of something. That one who came triumphantly into Jerusalem the first time. He's coming to Jerusalem again. And he's going to come in through the east gate and, to be, and be declared once and for all and forevermore King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior to those who bow their knee to him. 